Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears, we will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Layla Cameron, who I'm trying to remember how I found out about you, Layla. I think it must have been like a share. I because like I find out about everyone through Instagram <laughs> these days, but it must have been a share about from someone else about your Fatten podcast. And of course, I'm very interested in all things fat podcasts and fat podcasters. And then I started looking you up and I was like, whoa, (laughs) can I talk to Dr. Layla Cameron? And Dr. Layla Cameron said yes. And here you are. And I'm so thrilled because you've got so many cool things we're going to talk about. We already spent 15 minutes chatting and being like, oh, we should probably record. So we did. Here we are. I'm so glad you're on yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I appreciate your flexibility. I've had to reschedule on you a few times and I'm um, joining you from a camping chair in my new apartment. I've just moved in. So I love that it's a camping chair. <laughs> oh yeah. It's like a full on foldable camping chair. So it might creak a little. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, Layla, why don't you start by telling us about yourself? Sure. Well, um, I just finished my PhD at Simon Fraser here in uh, on the unseated territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Um, I am a filmmaker, a pod, now podcast producer and director. I've worked as a journalist for a long time. I kind of have my hands on many moving parts. I run a fat positive letterpress company called Stay Fat Design Co. Um, yeah, I've got lots of lots of things on the go at the moment, which is exciting and also uh, completely exhausting. <laughs> Right. One of the things I was curious about is please tell me how you manage all of that. Cause I'm also one of those people. I'm like a bit of like an octopus. I have like a project in every <laughs> tentacle. And, and then at some point it's like, Oh, I'm tired. <laughs> Thank you for assuming that I do. You know, I, uh, I don't know that I have a full handle on it all, but, um, they're all just kind of spinning in the air and I'm hoping one of them doesn't drop. <laughs> right. I understand that feeling deeply. Um, so what is, I always like to ask this question first, which is what is your relationship to the word fat? Now, I mean, I love the word fat. It's plastered all over my work and I align my work with the fat positive movement or movements. Um, my relationship with the word fat wasn't always friendly. I would say that up until probably my early 20s, the word fat made me incredibly uncomfortable. If someone had identified me as fat, that would have probably made me cry. And there was this, I mean, I'd always been interested in body positivity, but that was a very sort of like gentrified, watered down version that so many of us get introduced to as sort of like the first stepping stone. So my radical fat politics really formed in my mid-20s when I started my PhD and I discovered fat studies as a discipline and 
all of these sort of scholars and writers reframed the word for me in a way that felt good and I could kind of claim it for myself. And then it just kind of spiraled from there. And now it, it feels like it's taken over my life a little bit. I'm trying to not silo myself too much, but at the same time, I'm like deeply invested in fat liberation. So um, I love the word fat. I identify as fat. I think it's great. I love the phrase that you said, radical fat politic, my <laughs> radical fat politics. When you were being exposed from, you know, when you were kind of in that journey from body positivity to learning about radical fat politics, were there shocks? Were there surprises? Was there a lot of unlearning that had to happen? Like how, how was that transition for you? Because I know I, I found it really surprising and I realized I had a lot of my own internal work that needed to be done. So I'm, yeah, what was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that it was really affirming and it was nice to have put into words things that I had been thinking and feeling. I've always been very highly critical and and very political. I was an obnoxious teenager who like, my dad used to leave copies of Shameless and Bitch Magazine on my bed for me. Like that was like the kind of teenager I was. But I think, I think my unlearning about, I mean, the parts that felt very affirming for me were mostly teasing apart the intersections or sort of interlocking layers between fatness and disability studies and sort of ableism and healthism and all of those parts, really interrogating health at every size and sort of problematizing this, like I said before, this gentrified or washed down sort of body positivity. I think the part as a white person that was very confronting for me was really trying to understand as best that I could, considering my limitations as a white person, the interlocking aspects of racism and fat stigma. There was sort of this sentiment in, I wouldn't say fat studies as a discipline, but sort of just in general that fat oppression or fat stigma was sort of the last socially acceptable form of discrimination. And when I first was introduced to fat studies, I was like, yeah, because, you know, we're all saying that racism is bad and ableism is bad and classism is bad, but no one's saying that fat stigma is bad. And then when I sat down and, and thought about it, I realized just how problematic that was to hold that attitude because obviously all of those other isms are still ongoing. And you, I had a friend really sort of gently explain to me how without addressing and identifying and teasing apart things like racism or colonialism, we're not going to fully understand fat stigma and, and drawing those connections between hatred of the black body in particular, but other racialized bodies as well with fatness was really important to my learning and something that I needed to heavily invest in, in order to have a, a fuller grasp. Not that it's my grasp even now is perfect, but to have, um, an understanding beyond my own, right? I think we get introduced to fat politics and to fat studies as a discipline, often from our own positionalities. And so taking it that one step further was really critical to my learning. Yeah. Aubrey Gordon's book just came out. Um, it's right here on my desk. And I literally just read that because it's um, ordered according to myths. And that myth of you know, anti-fatness being the last, you know, acceptable form of discrimination. 
um, she really debunked it as well, very similarly to what you said, which is like, no, we can't, ha-, like, and in a way, I, I was thinking about why, because I think I've said something similar before, and I just sat here for a bit this morning thinking, what what has me say that? Because now that I'm reading this, of course that's not true. And it's that it made me feel like it gave me a bit of a boost. It was like, we're the, like, it, it allowed me to be more in my victim. Yeah, totally. And righteousness, therefore, victim led to righteousness. And I was like, oh, is that why we say this? Like, we were trying to like make ourselves special in some way. Anyway, it was very interesting emotionally. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes from a genuine desire to want fat stigma recognized and validated as a form of oppression, as a form of systemic and institutionalized form of oppression. Because so often when we talk about feelings about our bodies, for example, we frame them as feelings and feelings are feminized and misogyny and sexism persists. And so when we talk about the body or when we want people to care about how we feel about our bodies, it can feel like this very silly thing. And so to address it and sort of try to cement it in public discourse as a very real and violent form of oppression that you cannot argue with is hard. And sentiments like that really give us this very palatable and accessible slogan to arm ourselves with. So I I totally understand the draw and the attraction to that sentiment. And it took a little bit of time to tease that apart for me because it, I mean, it's hard. Any of this work is hard. Any of these conversations are hard and anything that makes it a little easier for us is going to be incredibly attractive, right? It's going to be so enticing to put that in our toolkit, so to speak. It's so true. I think a lot about the way we use the word fat phobia, which is actually and and again, I've I've known this and I still do it. And I, I really need to pay attention because the fact that we're using phobia, which is basically co-opting, um, you can probably say it better than I can, but basically like co-opting, um, it's a it basically an ableist term, right? We're actually we're saying because an actual phobia is a condition that is different than what we're trying to say with fat phobia, but we say it so easily. And this is where I think words matter, but Mm -hmm. saying it feels powerful when I'm arguing with someone. Well, and I think the connections between ableism and fat stigma are really strong. They're very intense. And so people's desire to not be fat, people's fear of becoming fat is sort of, you know, in very close proximity to our fear of becoming disabled, our fear of being mentally ill, our fear of confessing that we have depression or what have you. And so there is an element where there is a fear of fat. There is a very strong cultural fear of fat. So, you know, fat phobia isn't really necessarily completely incorrect, but there has been this shift towards using like weight stigma or fat stigma. I prefer fat stigma because I feel like weight stigma is still like body positive where it's like, you know. No, I want to name the word fat. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to lose it. But um, but yeah, I don't think uh, yeah, I don't think that the fear of fat is necessarily an inaccurate thing either. Right. Yeah. So interesting. You um, were exposed to this literature and then you decided to do your PhD in it. <laughs> how, how did that process come about? How did, I'm also really curious how 
you felt about being in an academic setting and studying something like fatness, which yeah. is still controversial and um, in terms of people's acceptance levels and beliefs when we talk about anti-fatness and how it's connected to racism and oppression. Like, I'm really curious about that piece as well. Yeah, I mean, so it's not that straightforward. I started my PhD in the fall of 2015. And after one semester, I went on a leave. And it was during that leave that I, um, so to backtrack a little bit, I had studied documentary filmmaking very informally in Toronto in 2013. And I'd been kind of waiting for a story that had all of the elements of a good documentary film to come across my path. And so fast forward to 2015, I've done a semester at SFU. I took a leave of absence because I was like, I don't really know if this is for me. There was a lot of talk and there still is about if there's a point, like the job market is kind of scary. Um, it's a huge investment of your time and money and whatever. And so I took a leave of absence. And during that leave of absence, I discovered Fat Girls Hiking and started working on my film. And sort of in the investigate or development phase was doing a lot of reading. And then I discovered fat studies and that just kind of blew my mind. And so when I contacted my supervisor about returning to SFU in fall of 2016, I said, I would like to return, but I'd like to completely pivot my research and ground it in fat studies. And bless my supervisor, she was not familiar with the discipline, but she was very open to it. And so... Um, I kind of was able to combine my studies in reality television with my studies in fad studies. And then that kind of came about. So it wasn't, it didn't start off like that. It kind of came together because of my filmmaking and the research I was doing for that. Um, because you're right, fat studies is definitely still seen as an emerging discipline and there aren't fat studies departments anywhere, right? Like usually it's a elective course in a gender studies program or what have you. And so um, it definitely was very like new. And in terms then of how it was received by my institution, I think it, I mean, when you're very confident or at least very committed to what you're studying, it does sort of instill maybe like a fear in people of of questioning you. I, you know, I never, no one ever said anything to my face about what I was doing. I would bet a lot of money that there were probably a lot of people, including faculty or people in my cohort who disagreed with it or had, you know, internalized fat stigma and, and all these different attitudes that would make them roll their eyes at my research. But no, no one ever said anything to my face and I just kind of kept on doing what I was doing. So as far as I know, um, actually, you know what, that's not true. I gave, there was a, there was a bit of interest from some of the people in my cohort and I was invited to give guest lectures on my research or on my film. And sometimes I would see comments or feedback from students who, uh, like really strongly disagreed with what I had to say and um, were almost offended that this information would be presented to them. So there was definitely a bit of resistance and pushback, but uh, nothing that got in my way, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Was there, I don't know that much about doing a PhD because I've not do done one, but were, if you were the only person kind of studying this in your, in your institution, in your cohort, was there a loneliness there too? Oh, yeah. But I, I think that doing a PhD is inherently lonely. 
It's an, you know, it's an independent project, especially during COVID. You can't even go to a cafe or the library to work with your cohort. But um, it's, yeah, I think doing a PhD is inherently lonely. And then you have the added layer of not really being able to discuss your ideas with your cohort or be challenged by them because this is all new information to them as well, uh, which added to it. But a PhD is just sort of a really masochistic thing to do. I don't know that I would fully recommend <laughs> it to anyone. I don't know that it's like fully necessary. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was incredibly lonely. And I think too, it was a blessing and a curse because what it meant was that there was a lot of interest in what I was doing, which was great because I think when we come at our research from a, a from a personal, like it hits us on a personal level, then we really want people to be interested in it. And how often do people ask to read your dissertation? I think I can think of one person who has read my dissertation. So, you know, as if people wanted to chat with me about it or if people wanted to like you interview me about it, it was great. And I think maybe that's also where it created a divide because that's a very unique experience that not a lot of graduate students receive. So I love the public interest in the topic. I love the support for my work or at least the curiosity about it and the opportunities that that brings. But at the same time, it puts a lot of pressure on you. And like I said, I, I study reality television and fatness. And so when I'm being interviewed by larger media outlets, for example, because they're curious about my work, most of the time they're asking me about things to do with health. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I've done enough research that I can confidently engage with you in conversation, but I'm not a medical doctor. And so there's this like really strong pressure to sort of be the voice for everything. And you don't always even consent to that, or that's not really what you were going for. I remember one time I there was this article about the Sterling Prize that I received, and the headline was um, like Layla Cameron or something, uh, the face of fat activism. And I was mortified. Oh, I was yeah. so upset when I saw the headline because A, I've never referred to myself as that, and I wouldn't. That's just inaccurate. But B, I was really worried about what fat community was going to think about that because it comes across as this really self-indulgent and narcissistic perspective of yourself and your work that I don't actually hold. But, you know, like it just, it really sort of, it was hard and not to be like, oh, poor me, but it was because I really didn't want to be alienated from my communities. And it kind of ran that risk. Every time you're pub you're doing public facing work, you run the risk of, um, hurting someone of someone disagreeing with you. I'm sure you feel this way when you put your podcast out there, right? Mm -hmm. Like it really makes you vulnerable to the criticism of others. And I don't really care about what like fat phobic doctors have to say, but I really care about what other fat people have to say. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Wow. That's yeah. I can see how long that answer. Sorry. No, it's amazing. No, I'm just thinking about that headline and yeah, I can imagine. Well, and I just, there's maybe a bit of irony that might not be the exact right word, but that it's the Sterling Prize in support of controversy. Yeah. <laughs> like, you won a prize about being controversial. And then the heading of this major news outlet was controversial in and of itself. <laughs> so, yeah. Some layers happening in there, Layla. Oh, totally. Um, totally. 
was what was that prize? Was that for your PhD research? Was that for the the documentary? It was for my entire body of work. It was for kind of just like all of it. Yeah, it was honestly, it was such an honor. It's not usually bestowed on a graduate student. It's usually like a member of the community, a political figure, faculty. And so it was especially humbling to receive it so early um, in my studies. Uh, and I, I mean, little Layla, like teenage Layla's stoked to be <laughs> recognized as a controversial public figure like that, you know, that was awesome. But it definitely, you know, from especially the, around that time in 2018, there were a lot of news outlets reporting on the prize. I mean, SFU has a great PR team. They did an excellent job marketing it. But it it definitely then put me down as a contact for articles that might in some way touch on fat politics, which meant then that I was being asked questions about topics that I'm probably not the best person to talk to. You know, there's so many people working in fat studies now in many different disciplines from law to medicine to whatever. And um, I was happy to take those calls because I want them to be happening rather than not happening. But it definitely felt like a lot. I was very, very grateful for my journalism training around that time because I think without that a lot of mistakes could have also been made you know yeah what do you mean by that like what kind of mistakes like what did the journalism background do to help you in those situations well I think that I have a familiarity with um how interviews work how editing works how um journalists often really just want a soundbite or a pullable quote and so you have to be very careful with the language that you choose with the way you phrase things, because once you say it, it's out of your hands and things can be manipulated really easily. So and I also have knowledge just of industry terms like this is off the record or this information is embargoed or what have you. And I think for especially for academics, we're not used to the public caring about what we're doing, right? <laughs> and true. so if anyone's expressing interest in what you're doing, it could make you really overexcited. You might be eager to overshare. You might um, get really flustered, what have you. And so my journalism training was useful because I could kind of sit and think about the angles I wanted to go at or um, the message that I really wanted to make sure was clear so that it couldn't be misinterpreted. Like I was interviewed last week by a journalist about all of the stuff going on with Ozempic. And I made it very clear throughout the interview that I was not going to support any kind of healthist attitude that suggested that intentional weight loss wasn't inherently uh, rooted in fat stigma. Mm -hmm. And they didn't end up using the interview because I think that, you know, for as a health writer, you're like, oh, well, you're not invested in health. So why, you know? even though I want to show the other perspective, this isn't useful to me. But I was happy I did that because I really didn't want there to ever be a quote out there in the world uh, with my name attributed to it that would ever suggest that I think you owe anyone good health. Yeah. So yeah, it's. It, I think it's trickier than people think. Right? Oh my gosh. All right. Well, I'm. if I get asked to do anything, I'm calling you first. <laughs> Happy to help. Please consult. Um, so your your research, I've got the title in front of me because I just love it. So Sticky Representations of Fatness on Contemporary Reality Television, colon, Envisioning, envisioning Fat Presence and Futures. 
That sounds amazing. Tell us about it, please. (laughs) So (laughs) I conducted effective readings of three different uh, reality television programs focused on fatness. First, I did my 600 pound life and then I did my big fat fabulous life and then I moved on to hot and heavy and all three are on TLC, which is sort of like the purveyor or the leader of fatness and reality TV. And essentially what I argued was that when a fat person who's invested in fat community and fat liberation and fat politics watches these shows that they're not just simply good or bad that they're very complicated that they still offer particularly fat viewers something good or something validating um, and that we can only understand these shows through these alternative readings so that's what um, sarah ahmed's concept of sticky objects where um they're not simple they're not simply categorized as one or the other that they rub up against things and they stick to each other um i'm butchering this and i'm sure she would explain it in a much better terms but <laughs> i kind of envision these shows as sticky where you know my 600 pound life for example on the surface is incredibly problematic and violent and horrific but then when you sit back and you watch some of the characters resist or you watch some of the characters demand to be touched or advocate for their comfort or talk Mm. about being hungry and wanting to satiate their hunger. That was, those were moments where I felt joy and where I felt identification and where I saw their humanity in a show that arguably sets out to dehumanize. That's what I was going to say. That's why, like, I, I don't know the third show. I don't know. What was it? Hot and Heavy? Hot and Heavy. Yeah. It's about mixed weight couples. Oh, how interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, but 600 pound life and what was the other one the second one was is my that big fat fabulous Whitney life. Waythor's yeah episode yeah show yeah I mean 600 pound life I thought I've I've I think I, not in recent years but I remember watching it when I was deep in my own struggle with internalized anti-fatness um oh and it it it's hard to describe the body feeling, but it was very much maybe that more surface reaction of it made me hate myself more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the, I think that's the goal. Yeah. Well, it worked. (laughs) It's horrible. That's why I think it's fascinating when you're saying there's a possible different read. If we actually look at the fat person, I, yeah, I'm trying to wrap my head around. This is fascinating. Like looking at the fat person as actually, trying to advocate for themselves even though the behavior that they're advocating for is considered to be wrong yeah that's really interesting yeah it i mean my 600 pound life is an incredibly violent show and my unique perspective as a filmmaker also meant that i could identify the intentional production choices to make it a viewer like you feel that way so shooting the body from the bottom up inherently enlarges the scale of the body showing close-ups filming a body struggling to move around the house makes it seem like a misfit right like it's misfitting in a space where it should be okay it should be able to get around And I think that when we take concepts like the misfit or the freak, for example, and Eli Claire does a really beautiful job of talking about freak shows and how when we look at historical freak shows, we can see how problematic they are, how exploitative they are, how oppressive they are, and how they serve the sort of uh, 
they function to satisfy the voyeuristic demands of an ableist society, right? However, they also point out how the freaks use things like the stare and the gaze to reclaim and shift the power dynamic between audience and object. And they also capitalized on their objection in a way that in a capitalist society is a good thing. And so when you take those concepts and look at them from both sides or from multiple sides, we can see how reality television as a financial opportunity can operate in a way that benefits subjects. We can problematize the gaze and the stare because as much as we are staring at subjects on screen, in reality TV in particular, often they're staring back. And that's especially sort of given this added layer when we think about the digital age, right? And social media and how a lot of the people we're watching on TV are also communicating with us on social media platforms and what have you. So there's a lot going on now with reality television and how it functions that really challenges or destabilizes traditional academic understandings of the industry, which really tended to highlight how like exploitative it is, how oppressive it is, all the sort of neoliberal capitalist functions of it, which are true. And that's why they're sticky because those things are still true, but we can also sort of, if I was able to experience glimpses, glimpses or moments of fat joy or excitement or humor or whatever, then they can't be inherently one thing or the other. There's gotta be something else kind of like functioning at the same time. That's amazing because you're really getting at, I think, something that humans really struggle with. I certainly see this in my work as a coach, which is holding both things to be true. Yeah. Like paradox is so hard because even as you're saying, I'm like, no, it's evil. It's vile. Get off. And it's like, no, actually, hang on a minute. Pause. Can I, can I stretch myself? Can I hold that both can be true? Like I think um, my 600 pound life is maybe a good example of that because Whitney's done really well. I'm curious, like, Mm -hmm. what's your thought on that show with respect to this? Yeah. So that chapter or section of my dissertation is based off of an article I had published in, I think, 2018 in the Fat Studies Journal, where I kind of argued that they overpromised and underdelivered. And that essentially what it was is that it wasn't a celebration of fatness, but instead it was just supporting these different good fatty archetypes that Stacey Bias, I draw from Stacey Bias's work. And so something like the fathlete, for example, so this idea that like, it's okay if you're fat because you're active or all of the emphasis on Whitney's condition of PCOS and how that sort of gives her a bit of a pass or at least a little more gentleness when we talk about her fatness. And none of those sort of good fatty archetypes reframe our attitudes about fatness itself. And so they're still inherently fat, fat phobic. Ooh, say that one more time, because I think that's the first time I've maybe thought of it that way. None of these good fatty archetypes refame. Yeah, or resignify fatness. They still position fatness as an unfortunate byproduct or circumstance or as something that we would still not want to be, but we will give people like a fat pass, right? Like we will, we will, um, accept their fatness because they're able to have worth in these other ways. And so that was my initial take. I I didn't have nuance when it came to my perspective of these shows. I really thought it was inherently problematic, that it was overpromising, that it was celebrated. I mean, the title is My Big Fat Fabulous Life. Mm-hmm. And yet there didn't seem to be anything fabulous about being fat. 
right? There were fabulous things about Whitney as a person, but there weren't really, at least at the time, and I think I only analyzed the first two seasons for that article, it was fabulousness about her as a person despite her fatness. Yes. It was still always in, there was always, fatness was always still circling. It wasn't like integrated or her as a, just up to the person. It's always this thing. Yeah. Exactly. And when you look at how the film or how the film, how the show is shot, it's really emphasizing, especially in those early episodes, um, how disabling her fatness is and that that's a bad thing or um, how much she struggles to date and how that is a barrier. So it's always emphasizing the barriers that she's facing due to fatness, which isn't untrue. Those things aren't not true, but there, I didn't really see what there was to celebrate. It felt like this really superficial or shallow mm-hmm. thing that had, you know, everyone was asking me, oh, have you seen the show? What do you think of it? Isn't it great? And I was sitting there going, I'm really disappointed and underwhelmed. And then when I watched the later seasons, and I think, again, this um, sort of trifecta of the audience and reality television industry and then social media, as that continues to grow and become more entangled, we start to see this sort of call and response between all three on the show. And so Whitney on her YouTube channel, for example, has this great video where she talks about how her and a smaller fat person are treated on the exact same talk show. And I was like, if that had been on the reality show about Whitney's life, then it would have been a more radical platform. But instead, Whitney is sort of sanitized in the editing process and comes across as this more like body positive individual. And in the later seasons, when um, even when Whitney starts to debate having weight loss surgery, there's these much more complicated responses and conversations that are had compared to the first few seasons. And that's kind of what I talk about in my dissertation is, you know, all of these things are still true. It's still a very sanitized, washed down version because it has to satisfy all of the industry demands and whatever. But we're also starting to see the influence of shifting social attitudes about mm-hmm. fatness. Right. So it's, it's not, it's just not that simple. And I, I will say that like you, my approach to most things tends to be a little more black and white. (laughs) And then through the process of writing this dissertation, I really had to just accept that I wasn't going to have a very clear thesis statement. My thesis statement was kind of just going to be, this is complicated and I'm going to tease it apart as best that I can. Yeah. Which I think is so true with the work of anti-oppression and liberation. Yeah. It's never perfect. You're never going to be able to encapsulate everything. You're never going to be able to be a voice for it all, and nor should you be. But you can do your best to handle it with as much grace and thought and detail as you can. And then that third show, the one where it's mixed weight couples, I haven't seen it at all. What's What was maybe, yeah, what, what happened there for you as you examined it? <laughs> Because I'm in a mixed weight couple, so I'm really, I'm super curious about this. I've been in many and I had a lot of feelings about it. So it, um, yeah. So the, my dissertation begins with a chapter giving sort of the historical foundations of fat stigma, as well as the ongoing obese, quote unquote, obesity epidemic. And so the evolution of these shows is also they're they're ordered in sequence of when they were produced. So Hot and Heavy was produced, I believe in 2020. It's only a three episode miniseries, mm. but it, its ethos, its premise was not 
at, it, it really challenged or destabilized TLC's overall sentiment that being fat is like horrific and completely like abject and, and a horror. And instead, I mean, it still did. I mean, it really highlighted attitudes about these super fat women because they're all had there's three or three heterosexual couples um, and in which all of the women are super fat and their partners are thin or not fat, I should say. And so there's a lot to unpack there in terms of like the gendered aspects of fatness and sexuality and fetishism and whatever. So that chapter is instead organized around those different themes. So around whiteness, around gender, around sexuality, around fetish to kind of tease apart all of those parts of the show, because there were more complex conversations put forth, but there was still this really dominant attitude of anti-fatness. So it wasn't this completely radical miniseries. It it just kind of continued the conversation or made it a little more intimate because it was explicitly about love and sex, which I found fascinating, especially as someone who's been in mixed weight couples where that was a thing that had to be talked about, you know, and and felt the optics of being in a mixed weight couple is um, complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. So interesting. Are there any reality TV shows or I would say even maybe shows in general where you feel like fatness is handled well? Not mainstream, not in the mainstream media, I would say. I think that it's just not profitable, right? And if it's not profitable, it's not going to get greenlit. There's tons of alternative media. There's tons of community-based media that is much closer to it. The closest I would say would be, I mean, there's a few fictional shows in which characters are fat and their size is not talked about. I mean, Shrill, I love, I mean, I love Shrill. I love Lindy West. Um, Samantha Irby, one of the writers, is just incredible. Uh, A.D. Bryan is fantastic. And yet, you know, still there were aspects of the narrative that were just familiar tropes and a little disappointing um, because it had to be. You can't not address those things. And I, I wonder, too, then, if there's this desire for media that can perfectly summarize the fat experience. But when we live in an inherently oppressive society it just might not be possible like Roxanne Gay talks a lot about um how when there are so few representations of marginalized groups that the few objects that do exist are held to an impossible standard right I I wrote a little bit about the L word Gen Q and work in progress and how even you know in terms of representing queer people and queer stories that they still follow these familiar things and can't we please have something different? Yes. And I just don't know. I mean, there's just so much pressure on things to be perfect. I felt it for my own projects and we're, there are many limitations at play. There's the need to turn a profit. There's a need to satisfy just the demands of filmmaking, which is, you know, close-ups and different shots and sound and whatever. I don't know. I don't know that there is anything that's, that's um, completely joyous at least not yet did you watch lizzo's reality 
You know, I haven't seen it yet. I was saving it as a treat for when I was finished my dissertation and then I burned out. So I, I still haven't seen it, but I'm dying to because you know what? Lisa was probably the one <laughs> figure where like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the closest we can get. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, I'd be really curious what your take on it is because you have this lens that you can look at it through. But I will say, and I don't watch a lot of reality TV for lots of reasons, because pretty much almost all of it is <laughs> very anti-fat. Um, but I loved Lizzo's Watch Out for the Big Girls because it was just, it, it, there was humanity, there was complexity, it, they were all, you know, shaking everything. So it was yeah. very, very body focused and not trying to hide anything or, make things seem less fat. Like it, I, yeah, again, I'd be, I'll have to have you back to talk about that when you watch <laughs> it. But I, I was so, it made me cry. Like most people I've talked to other fat people have said it made them cry watching it because it was like, oh wow, these fat people just get to be who they are. And it's actually celebrated because Lizzo's looking for fat people. You know, so the one thing that I've always stayed true to throughout my PhD was I would go to Coachella every year with a friend of mine and we would turn it, it was in between semesters, the timing was perfect, and we would turn it into a two or three week road trip, but we would always end up at Coachella down in um, Indio. And I, for the first few years, I mean, it's so hot during the day. It's just a game of survival, especially when you're camping. It's so hot and I'm fat. And so I, it was just awful walking around. I mean, the whole optics and aesthetics of Coachella is that you're like thin and white and rich and whatever. And I am one of those things, but not the others. And so walking around, it always felt really lonely. And I always felt like a spectacle because I'm pouring sweat. I'm literally just trying to survive. I don't feel very beautiful or attractive, what have you, you know, walking around in shorts with my fat legs showing. And no, I always felt like the only fat person. I rarely ever saw other fat people. And then when Lizzo performed at Coachella, I can't remember what year this was. I want to say 2018 or 2019. I remember pushing my way to the front row and literally saying like, thin people, this is not for you. Like fat people should be in the front. Like, you nice. know, fat folks of color, please go ahead. Anyone else like, you know, to the back. And then Lizzo came on and all of the dancers were fat and they were all in bodysuits. So their legs were out and whatever. And I cried. Yeah, I just cried the entire time because it was pure joy to finally feel like I wasn't the only one who looked like that there, or at least looked somewhat like that. And from that moment on, it felt like there was this huge shift where the next year when I went back, there were other fat people walking around in shorts. I had never, I mean, I don't remember seeing that before. Yeah, And I remember also thinking as a Canadian going down to the States, like, we're always told that the United States is sort of the leader of the quote unquote obesity epidemic. So like, why do I feel like the only fat person here? Yeah. And after that, there was this like really big shift. And I honestly, 
Yeah. Thank God for Lizzo. Our softball team, we have a fats. I have a fats only softball team called the heavy hitters. And we always say, do it for Lizzo. When you're going up to bat, you do it for Lizzo (laughs) or you like call from the field, do it for Lizzo because honestly, yeah, she, Lizzo is God. God. Honestly, I know. Yeah. My, um, my best friend and I went to Lizzo's concert in October and same thing. We're in the crowd. It was in Toronto. It was at the ACC and we're just sitting there going, however many, 20,000, however many it holds, like a lot of thousands. And it was the most diverse group that I have been. People were in full costumes. There were all ages, all different ethnicities, lots of different size bodies. It was, yeah, like both of us were like, whoa, this is like, remember this moment, remember this moment, that feeling of really truly being in diversity and all acceptance was unbelievable. I, I'm with you. Lizzo is like, if I could talk to Lizzo, I mean, that is my number one. I don't think I could. I don't know if I could. I just, I, yeah. And I, I remember too, even when she started posting on Instagram, I want to say about shakes or smoothies or something. There was something that kind of rubbed up against diet culture. Yes, yes. And my take on it initially, kind of going back to your first question, actually, was a bad take where I was just inherently disappointed. And it really felt like, here's another fat icon that we've lost. Mm-hmm. Rebel Wilson, Adele. Yep. Mm-hmm. Honestly. And <laughs> I think that I really appreciated the think pieces that came out about that because a no one should be telling a fat black woman what to do with their body at all or have an opinion on it. That's sort of the whole point of like body sovereignty, body neutrality, but also that um, they just think that these things are more complicated. And I think that's maybe where I get a little defensive is that as someone who is whose work is public, often public facing, I know that the complexity is often lost. And so the simple messaging is what gets through and therefore things become watered down or people get left behind or we create these hierarchies within fact communities that is goes against what I want and what I'm working towards. At the same time, it felt again like there had been this shift where we were able to have a complicated conversation about this and about our feelings about it. And that was really beautiful. It felt like a really validating um, moment where I thought, okay, maybe we can push the envelope a little bit forward. And again, like thanks to Lizzo. And I think Lizzo did also kind of come out and participate in part of that conversation and dialogue and what have you. And so it feels like there are kind of these shifts happening, even when um, these public figures who we hold to this very high standard do something that doesn't feel good for us or for some of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because Lizzo is an individual that does have body sovereignty. It's like we want to apply all these systemic level, all the systemic level thinking onto this individual and that we can't, we can't do that. Like that's what there's not that, that they're saying where, we can't solve systemic level problems by having the individuals be responsible for it. That's, that's, that's another tool of oppression is to just keep us in that loop, like ignore the systemic stuff, ignore the capitalistic nature that is fueling diet culture. Yeah. And just blame Lizzo for talking about shakes. 
Yeah. Or to even, and I, I don't know what Lizzo's actual fat politics are and it, I don't care. She, she is God. I, I don't care. But I mean, obviously I would care if it went too far, but I doubt it would anyway. But I, but we also, you know, when, oh, cause it's so rare for a fat person to become an icon, right. Yes. And to be celebrated and not just completely treated like shit. And I think it's also unfair for us to expect fat icons to have radical fat politics yeah you know or to have radical class politics i mean we would hope but we we don't see thin or non-fat public figures put on the cross the same way and that's kind of what roxane gay was getting at i believe when she was talking about the pressure that's put on these few things because they can't be everything to everyone no one can and yet we we really sort of um, come at them so strongly if they do something to disappoint us because that's how deep that sadness goes, right? Like that that's how deep those feelings and those, that those embodied traumas go. So I completely understand it, but I think gentleness all around is probably a better approach to that. Yeah, fat sadness. I haven't actually heard that term that way before. That's a term by Aubrey Gordon. Um, well, under the pseudonym of your fat friend, I think from an article on Medium in 2016. And I remember when I read that, I felt so cracked open yeah. because when you, at least for me, when I first embraced the word fat and my fat politic and this identity and this form of activism and what have you, there's a lot of pressure to never sort of revert back to these sad feelings that you might have to deny that part of your humanity and the reality of living in an oppressive society because it sort of almost feels like you're being hypocritical and when i read that article about fat sadness it was giving me permission to name these parts of like my humanity that i had been working very hard to deny and that has really shaped my activism and sort of community work moving forward it does mean you have more difficult conversations like, and you have to have sort of rules and boundaries around it. I'll use my softball team as an example because I adore our softball team. <laughs> um, but we do have rules where like, you know, no diet talk on the field, no body talk on the field um, to check in with people and ask permission before disclosing something as best that you can. Because, you know, we want to be able to support each other and talk about feelings that come up when you're a fat person and a fat body running in public on a field at the same time that can really destabilize and throw off the environment and the energy of the of the dugout so to speak so um i appreciated that sort of it's a wonderful article i would really recommend it to anyone um because it it kind of names and and puts into perspective even for like non-fat folks if you love fat people in your life and you are not a fat person and you don't have that experience reading that article i think is a very useful way to develop an understanding of how you can best support fat people too absolutely i've made a note to see if i can um i'll find it and link to it in the show notes i would like to read i don't know that i've i don't know that i've read it 
Um, and that term feels, I can feel the cracking open of that term. Even just. Oh yeah. Yeah. Make sure you're in a good headspace. Okay. Good. That article. Cause it might, <laughs> you know, it might, uh, it's sort of like when you have a really good therapy session and then you're like, cool, the rest of my day is done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that article might kind of be like that too. <laughs> I find that with almost everything that Avi writes. It's like, I, I want to read it and it's also really hard to read it too. Yeah. Like the, her first book, um, what is it? Uh, what we don't talk about when we talk about fat. That was like hard as a fat person to read. Yeah. I haven't read it, but I've read a lot of their writing on uh, medium, um, especially when they were writing under their pseudonym. And, um, I, I remember reposting it on social media platforms and stuff and just being like, oh, this speaks to these parts of me that I don't want you to ask about, but I'd love for you to know about. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting because it this whole thing makes me think about the most kind of recent controversy happening right now with Brandon Fraser and the whale. Yeah. Ugh. I know. The standing ovation was so cringy. Well, and then I saw Brandon Fraser was on, um, oh, I think it was Seth Meyers and the tag, the headline title was how the whale accurately predicts obesity. And I'm like, motherfucker. Predicts what? That fat people still exist? Like predicts what? I mean, I, I don't know anything about the film and I refuse to see it and I refuse to read anything about it. But I also, I think it's like really interesting that this, because correct me if I'm wrong, but Brendan Fraser was kind of this like sex icon or this like mm -hmm. really popular public figure who has now gained weight. And so, I mean, obviously he's wearing a fat suit in that film, but he still doesn't look like he did 20 years ago and who does, but um, sort of like it, I'm sure maybe that that process and the validation is cathartic for him in some way, shape or form. And I'm sure his career has suffered because of his weight gain and whatever but i just feel like this is almost fodder for what we were talking about earlier about fatness being like the last socially acceptable form of oppression because i feel like if a actor made a comeback by doing a film in which they wore blackface and not not that i'm saying racism and fat stigma are the same thing at all but for lack of a better example like we would all shut that down. It would not be celebrated. It wouldn't go to production. And yet with fat suits, like, why are we still do? I just, I know. Why are it's because we would rather not pay fat, a fat performer and acknowledge that fat people exist. Yeah. And that's sort of what this, and when you mentioned the, the title of my dissertation, that's what that second half is about. It's about how fatness is treated as a liminal identity. It's something that we're supposed to, reject and move through. It's not something that we can exist as. And there are elements of all of those programs where we see people existing as fat and we also see them preparing for a future as fat. And I just feel like films like The Whale are maintaining fatness as a liminal identity, especially when we look at how we're talking about the film, how we're talking about the actor and how we're self, like what exactly we're celebrating about that is still just so much maintaining this attitude about fatness as an inherently bad, negative, abject, disgusting thing. And I'm so over that. I'm so over those conversations. And I, I, as much as I don't want to be like, I don't 
want to be siloed. I don't want my work to be siloed. And I don't want to have those conversations anymore. I don't want to have these one-on-one conversations where I'm trying to explain to you that like fat people are human beings and they're human beings because they're fat. It's not despite of it. Mm-hmm. Ah, I yeah. know. I know. Yes. I, I came from a conversation with a colleague uh, to record this episode. So I was on with this person before and then came here and they used the word obesity out in a context that had nothing, like it wasn't about, we weren't talking about fatness. It's a, t- you know, totally different side of work that I do. And it was so interesting. And I was like, you know, I just have to jump in. And I just want to say, you know, that is a really stigmatizing word and here's why. And this is a lovely person. They've done a lot of anti-O work and still, like this is, for me, this is one of the real challenges. I know in my circles, there's a lot of people doing really wonderful anti-oppression work. They're diving into their own assumptions around racism. They're learning about microaggressions. They're understanding ableism. They're using, you know, proper pronouns, people's pronouns. Like there's a lot of work and that still they're shocked when I tell them, yes, anti-fatness is, as I said to this person I was speaking with, anti-fatness is rooted in racism. And they were like, what? Oh my gosh. And I said, yes, here's why. Think about it. Da, da, da. And they were really grateful and it's awesome. And so it was, it was actually a really beautiful transaction. I felt very empowered and, and still the fact, like when, when is it just not, when will we be past this phase of people not getting that this is a form of oppression. It is violent. It is fueled by profits, by companies who do not give a shit about anything other than profits. Hello, pharmaceutical companies who have bought off politicians, who have bought off researchers. I mean, I've, I did a really, I did a two-part series with, um, Reagan Chastain about weight loss surgeries, weight loss drugs, Noom and Weight Watchers. <laughs> and then of course I'm talking to, I'm interviewing Aubrey Gordon very soon. And so like all the information is there and yet we still have to have very basic conversations. Like you said, if, if there, if we, I could just like not have one more person. Yeah, I really feel I still in every article I publish in my dissertation in any lecture I give, one of the very first slides is a note on language. And it's where I draw from Marilyn Wayne's introduction to the fat studies reader. And I say, I do not use the term obesity. If I have to, I put it in scare quotes and that is intentional. And it is because, you know, a fat is not a bad word. It's a neutral descriptor, just like tall or short or whatever, but B to show that the pathologization of body diversity as a disease is inherently violent and harmful. And I reject it and I will problematize it. And I think, you know, your friend using the word quote unquote obese is diff. It it goes to show just how deeply ingrained the association or pathologization of fatness as a disease runs and again, that I think that's where people have a block to these conversations or more complex conversations um, because it it means really rejecting and destabilizing everything we think we know is true. And especially for those of us who came of age in the early 2000s when, you know, the war on obesity was like really ramping up, it's 
so deeply ingrained in ourselves. You know, it's such a a part of us that I don't know that it's fully possible for people to let go of it. Just sort of how like uh, letting go of ableism or healthism is an everyday, it's an active thought process. It's not something that you just achieve. Same with being anti-racist. As a white person, as someone who is socialized as white, who experiences white privilege, that is an active and ongoing learning process for me. And so I think it's just going to be the same with fatness. And it's it's hard because I, and I don't want to speak for you and how you felt, but when our friends use that language or when they reveal themselves to have those attitudes or when they talk about their own non-fat bodies in that way, it's incredibly alienating. Um, and it's a type of microaggression that is particularly difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. Well, Layla, you're brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. This was so fun. <laughs> I also feel just like incredibly flattered to be on a podcast that is also hosting people like Aubrey Gordon and Reagan Chastain. Like that's incredible. So thank you so much for inviting me. This is really lovely. Oh my gosh, of course. And I have one more question before we go, which is about joy. Cause you know, I, I always think by the time I, after I've like bitched and moaned for about an hour with my guest, I'm like, oh yeah, it's called fat joy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how do you stay connected to joy, Layla? This is going to sound so brutal, but I made a rule a little while ago that I wanted no more thin friends. And I have surrounded myself with fat folks and also with fats only spaces. So for example, my softball team, the heavy hitters is a sacred site of fat joy for me. And there are a few things in my life that are more beautiful than watching our team play. So I think yeah, I think fat joy can really truly be found in fats only spaces that are, are just intentionally curated. Um, they're sort of like one of the few places where you can explore who you are. And I think that fat people are often denied that opportunity. So it's like beyond being fat, you know? So yeah, I would say that's a sacred site of fat joy for me. Oh, I love that. I interviewed uh, recently Kayla Stansberry, who's a therapist, and we talked about how fat communities can be a source of like an actual therapeutic way to heal fat trauma. And like you just, yeah, that's it. Absolutely. At the end of our very first season, we were playing our last game in the finals tournament and uh, we we killed it. Like we won that game, but we won it by a lot. And the last, the open inning was just like run after run after. It was just so beautiful. And I'll never forget that when the game was over, our entire team came running out of the dugout onto the pitcher's mound and was jumping and screaming. And I mean, we didn't win many games that season, but we won that game and we won it by a lot. And people were sobbing as they were cheering. And afterwards we do like a circle of pride after every game. And you talk about one thing that you're proud of from uh, the game and whatever. And so many of our players who some of them are in their forties it's and some of them are in their twenties. So there's quite a, a big range of ages, but some of the older folks were talking about how that was the first moment in their entire life where they got to experience a quintessential stereotypical life achievement because if you think about it, so many people play little league or whatever, and they they know what it feels like to be a part of a team or to celebrate a win or whatever. 
And that broke my heart because I remember thinking you have been on this planet for over four decades and this is the first time that you got to, that you were, had access to something that so many people take for granted. So it was beautiful and it was also um, upsetting, but it goes to show just like you said, how sacred those places are. You know, I will, yeah, I'll stand by the heavies forever. They're the best. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and it's interesting. I'm noticing there's a lot of um, sacred fat spaces being created with fat liberation circles. Um, another therapist that I interviewed is has created something called Fat Village that is like taking registrations now. Like, because yeah, this need to be in safety, and I've certainly, I mean, I. I'm not in communication with my family for this reason. And I have friends who I'm not in communication with because my safety as someone who lives in a marginalized body, who's experienced decades of fat trauma, I get to choose now. Yeah. And that, that choice is sacred to me. And with, you know, to steal from, an, an overquoted <laughs> phrase by Mary Oliver, like the soft animal of my body wants to live my sacred, my, what is it? My one sacred life. Um, being in safety and being able to live from joy and not have to feel on defense or in, in, in emotional labor. And so I get that whole, what you said, I'm just like, yeah, you know, I hadn't quite worded it that way, but that's what you've described is very true for me too. You know, only people who are steeped in the knowledge, if they are non-fat, they have to understand fat politics. They have to be aligned with me around fat liberation. And if they're not, I'm not interested. Yeah. I just want to like acknowledge the magnitude of what you just said. I think that having to make that choice and being in that position is profoundly difficult and traumatic, but, and also so critical to prioritize your safety and your comfort and your happiness. And all of those things are things that not just fat people, but people who live in non-normative bodies have been told to deny themselves. And so even just, um, I always think about in Charlotte Cooper's book, uh, fat activism one of the forms of activism is microactivism or or two of them are microactivism and ambiguous activism and i remember reading this part where she talks about choosing furniture that is comfortable in your house is a form of activism and i was 26 when i read that book and i realized that i had never thought about my comfort when i was buying furniture for my oh, house me too right and then i was like never again never again. And that was a, that was a huge turning point. So yeah, I just want to identify that, that, um, like what you just said was like very vulnerable and also just so important. So I don't want to quickly move past. <laughs> Thank um, you. And I also think that's why I, I, um, mentioned the poem, right. That, that, um, I think you're going to read or maybe read, um, because it's, it's, it's asking us to stop and think about that. And I love that. And I want that for us. And I want to constantly remind the folks in my life who have been told to punish themselves that another future is possible. Another present is possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, 
may we all give ourselves that permission. Oof. Yes, please. Right. Oh, Layla, what a true joy. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I've learned so much from you today, as I imagine everyone else listening has too. If that is true for you, if you have learned something, share this episode with your favorite fat friend or anyone who you think could benefit hearing it. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Layla. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. My conversation with Dr. Layla Cameron was another reminder of how much of what we believe is shaped by the media, specifically in our case, representations of fat bodies, and therefore how important it also is to counter these deeply problematic and biased influences, which is why I picked this beautiful, powerful poem by Tanya Ingram called Until the Stars Collapse. You owe it to yourself to quit being the apology, to hold your hand and sing your favorite song, to love another and see how far that will go, to love yourself and forget where you were headed in the first place. Love is a funny story. It wakes up and builds a plot. It wakes up and shapes you into the kind of woman your mother studies. I am not perfect in it. I am not even remotely articulate, but it is big, this love. It is airborne and triumphant. I am no easy show. I hurt like the climb of my lineage. I hurt on purpose. I hurt to not be hurt. No, none of this is an excuse, just a blueprint, a map. Come find me when the day is bronze and the sorrow is full. I am building my poem in this here heart. All of it is a working title. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.